Open to Ezekiel chapter 25. I'm going to guess when we began preaching through the book of Ezekiel, this is probably not the chapter that you've looked forward to the most. In fact, I'd say that's probably true of the next several chapters. But I do think that this is God's Word, and it is good for us. Okay, so in chapter 24 that we looked at last week, the siege uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, the siege against Jerusalem began in that chapter. And in chapter 33... Ezekiel will receive the word that the city has been struck down. So in chapter 24, the siege begins. And in chapter 33, Ezekiel receives word that the city has been struck down. But those chapters bookend everything in between in chapters 25 and 30 through 32. And in these chapters, we're going to study prophecies related to seven nations that had contact with Israel, nations that are singled out for condemnation because of their maltreatment of the nation of Israel, specifically their delight of the Babylonian invasion of the Promised Land and subsequent destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple. These nations that we will look at over the next several chapters include Ammon, Moab, Edom, And Philistia, at least we'll look at those this evening in chapter 25. Then throughout the rest of the chapters, we'll look at Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. The order that they're given is is nothing unique. It just starts in the northeast of Israel, and it works its way to the west. It's simple enough. That's the way that these prophecies are given. One of the interesting notes, though, about all of these condemnations against these different people groups is that much unlike other prophets, Ezekiel does not contain any prophetic condemnation of Babylon, of all nations. That's interesting, at least to me. That doesn't mean that Babylon is innocent. That does not mean that she will not be judged. Other prophets are crystal clear about that. Their prophecies certainly are trustworthy. The fact that Ezekiel doesn't have it doesn't mean all of those are now canceled out. Uh, Even Jeremiah, a contemporary of Ezekiel, has a very lengthy section condemning Babylon for their sinful actions. It's just noteworthy to me that Ezekiel doesn't have it. It's just interesting because he's in Babylon preaching to captives that have been taken by the Babylonian army into exile in Babylon. Anyway... Just a trivial pursuit answer, I suppose. The placement of these eight chapters is is also interesting. I mean, again, chapter 24, the siege begins against Jerusalem. Chapter 33, you know, Ezekiel receives word that the city's fallen. Why here? Why are these chapters here? Well, there there is discussion about that among like-minded commentators. It's certainly tempting to take the position that these prophetic condemnations are placed here as if God is saying to the surrounding nations, don't be too happy about what you see going on in Jerusalem. Your time's coming. Like that, That's tempting to look at it that way. But unlike other prophets like Jonah or, or Daniel, those prophets directed their prophecies to the nations that they pronounced judgment on. But Ezekiel's audience 
is Jewish. I mean, he's, he's preaching to the captives. He's telling them what is to come of these nations. So he's not, he's not telling the nations, you, be, you don't be too happy because your time's coming. That really doesn't add up because he's saying this to the captives. It seems more likely that Ezekiel's message to the Judean captives in Babylon is, look, God has not lost sight of his covenant with you. He doesn't overlook the things that are being done to you. He's aware of all of the mistreatment, but you're going to go through this judgment. They'll get theirs, but you're going to go through this judgment. In fact, the title of my sermon this evening is, They'll Get Theirs. Don't worry about them, though. This is comforting to these people, but they still have to go through the judgment that is facing them. Anyway, in this text, Ezekiel at least offers some consolation to the Judean captives concerning the nations that, that have mistreated them throughout their, their history. So let's, let's begin looking at this here. Let's look at verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you said, Aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit, and they shall drink your milk. I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel, therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations, and I will cut you off from the peoples and make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So the genesis of the people referred to in the Bible as the Ammonites is recorded for us in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 19. After Lot was delivered from Sodom, he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Maybe you know the story. Shockingly, really, on subsequent evenings, his daughters got him sloppy drunk, we'd say, down here in Alabama. They essentially raped him, and both of them were impregnated by their father. Genesis 19, if you'd like to read it, I'm giving you the Cliff's Notes version. It's a lot better than <laughs> reading it again if you know the story. No, it's always good to read God's Word, of course. Well, the Ammonites descended from the younger daughter, and the Moabites, whom we'll look at in just a second, descended from the older daughter. That's all in Genesis 19, 37 and 38. Apparently, their history, as you might well expect, has been as corrupt as their beginning. Both nations being a constant thorn in the side of Israel. Well, it's the Ammonites though, not not the Moabites, but the Ammonites specifically that are addressed here in these first seven verses of this chapter. And notice the charge in verse 3. 
Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you said, Aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. So this is, those are the charges that God is waging to the Ammonites here. They rejoiced over the destruction of the temple, it says. That's the first charge. Obviously, their rejoicing over the, the destruction of the temple is to scorn Yahweh, the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, but not only you know, the God of Israel. Yahweh is the true and living God, the only God, the creator of heaven and earth. And here are the Ammonites rejoicing that the temple that God gave the blueprint for, by which He was to be worshipped at that time, they were rejoicing that it was destroyed and that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army had wiped Jerusalem off the map. They were rejoicing about that. I think Charles Feinberg rightly says this was, quote, a belittling of the honor and majesty of God, end quote. That's exactly what they meant. And though the focus is Judah in the book of Ezekiel, don't ever lose sight of the fact that God holds accountable every character in the book. He holds all of these nations accountable. The focus is Judah. They're the ones receiving all of these messages through Ezekiel. But God took note of the sins of the surrounding nations just like He knew what was going on in Judah. More on that a little bit, a bit, a little bit later. So the Ammonites also rejoiced over the destruction of the land. They rejoiced over the Judeans being carried captive into Babylon. Look, they hated the Jews. They despised the God of Israel. And this was, this was manifest in their rejoicing of the invasion of the promised land. Notice what it says in verse 6. Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all malice within your soul against the land of Israel. This describes some, somewhat of a, a united public celebration over the fall of Jerusalem. It, it almost sounds like a, a parade of sorts. That's probably what we would do today similar to this. And by the way, they are not rejoicing because God finally judged His people for their unfaithfulness. It's not that they're concerned about the name of Yahweh. That's not, that's not at all what's going on. That certainly would be honorable if that's the case. But they hated God. And they hated the people of God. And so God here pronounces judgment on them for their sin. Notice what it says in verse 4. Therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession. They shall set their encampments among you, make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit. They shall drink your milk. I'm not sure we can be absolutely dogmatic as to who the people of the East are. I say that because good commentators take different opinions. And this text does not specifically say who the people of the East are. Ralph Alexander, probably the most well-respected commentator on Ezekiel, believes that refers to Babylon. I agree with him. I'll tell you why here in just a moment. But Charles Feinberg, who is greatly respected for his 
commentary work not only on Ezekiel, but on a number of the prophets, believes this is just the nomadic tribes of the Transjordan. He's always worthy. We use him often. I just think he's overthinking it. Uh, I think, I think it's, it's Babylon that it's referring to here, and I'm going to tell you why. Back in chapter 21, I know because I preached that chapter, you may recall that Ezekiel was given this prophecy of Babylon coming to a crossroad and having to decide whether they were going to attack Judah or they were going to attack the Ammonites. I don't know if you recall that or not. It's in chapter 21, verses 18 through 23. And Nebuchadnezzar is seen as using these these pagan sorceries to determine which nation he should attack first. And God, Yahweh, though he's not worshipped through those pagan ways, he is still sovereign over them. And providentially, he used them to make sure that Jerusalem was attacked first. You may recall that. I hope that you do. Anyway, so when Nebuchadnezzar actually left Babylon to attack Jerusalem, the Ammonites were in his sights too. He left there to attack both Ammon and Judah. And the Ammonites believed that when he ended up going to Jerusalem, that they were going to be off the hook. But they were wrong. They were dead wrong. Both Ezekiel 21 and this text before us this evening makes crystal clear that God has not forgotten the sins of the Ammonites and He is going to hold them accountable. And by the way, for the record, Josephus, if you've ever heard of Josephus, he's a, he's a Jewish historian, very trustworthy. He records that, the, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army brought the Ammonites into subjection. They ruled over them, made them a vassal state, so to speak, in the fifth year after the destruction of Jerusalem. So that lines up perfectly with what we see here in Ezekiel. I say all that to say I think the people of the East refers to Babylon. It it just fits. It seems obvious to me, and I love Charles Feinberg, but I think he's just incorrect in thinking that it's somebody other than, than Babylon. Anyway, Ammon is going to be completely conquered. Notice what it says in verse 4. It says that foreigners would make their dwellings in your midst. I mean, they're going to come in there. They are going to occupy the land. It says that Rabbah, the capital city, would actually become pasture land for livestock. It says that Ammon, that could be the former capital before Rabbah, or it could just be referring to the entire land. It's hard to know for sure. But it would become a fold for flocks. Think if a modern prophet, if there was such a thing, there's not, but if there was such a thing as a modern prophet, and he said Montgomery, Alabama will become nothing but pasture land in the next few weeks, God's going to judge it. That, that would be significant. Well, that's exactly what they're hearing here. That's the basic idea. What's the purpose of it? Same thing we've seen all through this book. Notice at the end of verse 7, Then you will know that I am the Lord. By the way, and from this point on all the way through the end of chapter 32, that phraseology will be used 19 times. So that is God's purpose in all of these judgments, that you will know that I am Yahweh. That's what it it says in Hebrew. Now it said this about the Jews a number of times so far in Ezekiel. We've seen that, that you will know that I am the Lord. The difference, though, 
between what we've seen with Israel and here with the Ammonites is that Israel would know God repentantly. But Ammon and the other nations we're going to look at, they're going to know God through the result of inescapable wrath. That's the way they're going to know God. Thank the Lord we live in the day and age in which the gospel has gone out into all the world to every creature, right? (laughs) Amen. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities from the cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth... <laughs> I'm going to let Brian come up here and pronounce all of these. Beth, Jeshemoth, Baal, Maon, Kiriathame, and I will give it along with the Ammonites to the, to the people of the east as a possession that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab then they will know that I am the Lord. So again, Moab descended from Lot's incestuous relationship with his older daughter. Uh, They're addressed, obviously, here in this section. Seir is also mentioned, which was in the land of Edom. Edom was located just south of Moab. They They were close neighbors. They often cooperated. So they're sort of included here, but they're also going to receive their own condemnation in the next section in verses 12 through 14. So Edom is getting a little bit of this. They're going to get a lot of it here in just a moment. The charge against Moab is different than the charge against the Ammonites, right? The Ammonites rejoiced that the temple had been destroyed. That's not what Moab is accused of. Notice it says, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. In other words, Moab said there's nothing unique about Israel. There's nothing unique about the God of Israel. And there's nothing unique about God's relationship with Israel. Deuteronomy 7 says, quote, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's the law. Moab said, we don't believe that. They're just like all the nations. And therefore, Israel's God was just one of the gods to the Moabites. I'm going to tread cautiously here but we need to be very leery of taking a position in which Israel is just one of the nations, so to speak. Now listen, salvation is the same for Jews as it is for Gentiles. That was the case here at this time. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That That was true for the Jew. That was true for the Ammonite, the Moabite, the Edomite, and every other ite out there. But still, Israel was God's chosen people. That's where the temple was. God placed His love on them. Israel's God was the true and living God. The the nations around them worshipped pagan gods, heathen gods. And the Moabites are saying, they're nothing special. You see what's going on here in the text. 
Look at, look at Romans 11 really quick. I want, to, I want to show you something. It seems the Apostle Paul believed that the Gentile saints in Rome were in danger of making a similar mistake that the Moabites made. At least it comes away that, that way to me. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 11. By the way, this is speaking of, of Jews, of Israel. When it says, did they stumble, it's talking about Israel. That will become clear as I read more. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, Paul is saying, did they stumble forever? Are they gone? Are they nothing? Are they what the Moabites considered them to be way back here in Ezekiel 25? That's his question. By no means. That, that's the Greek word meganata that means no, 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 a thousand times no. It's the strongest negative possible in Greek. So I ask you, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass... Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. I would love to preach this entire chapter really quick. This is rich, right? The gospel has, has gone into the entire world to every creature because the Jews rejected Jesus. You don't think God works through bad things. That is a perfect picture of the sovereignty and the providence of God, right? That's what Paul is saying here. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, Paul's saying when they're when they brought back into fellowship with God, how much better will it be then? Right? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Here's why we're here. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I, may, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, then what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the, whole, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, that's some of the Jewish branches, right? The, the unbelieving Jews is the ones he's speaking of there. If some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, they're not, you know, ethnic Jews, but they're sons of Abraham through faith, that you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, listen, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Gentiles, don't be arrogant toward the Jews. That's what that means there. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in 
for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the, time, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I know that's a very long reading. I do not have time to explain every word of it. I preach through it. It's on our app. It's on Sermon Audio. Go listen to it, or if you really want to hear something good, go listen to John MacArthur. I'm sure it's a lot better than what I did when I preached through it. Anyway, Paul is specifically dealing with ethnic Israel here and their place in God's prophetic timetable, their rejection of their Messiah King. Obviously, that's part of this text, their subsequent unbelief, at least predominantly. Israel is an unbelieving nation. Don't forget the entire church was Jewish at first, that's, that's how it began there in Jerusalem, but by and large, most Jews in this age have rejected the gospel. And chapters 9 through 11 of Romans actually discusses all the ramifications of Israel rejecting the gospel. But Paul gets very specific, as you can see as we read here. You don't, you don't have to understand everything to get what I'm about to say. God historically revealed Himself through Israel to the nations. That is true in Ezekiel 25. But it's even clearer through Christ, who came as a Jew, as a descendant of Jacob, as a descendant of David. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. You can see that back in Romans 9 verse 5. And we Gentiles, praise the Lord, have been grafted in among those natural branches. Amen. But verse 18 again tells the Gentiles to not be arrogant toward the branches. Paul goes on to explain how the Gentiles as a group could be judged just like the Jews were judged. Right? He's not, he's not talking about individuals losing their salvation. That's, that's not at all what's going on here. But he's, he is saying Gentile nations can be judged just like Israel has been judged. More on that later. And then in verse 25, Paul speaks of the temporary nature of this hardening that has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then he says, in this way will all Israel be saved. The Deliverer will come from Zion. That's Jesus. right? He is the Deliverer. He will banish ungodliness, sin from Jacob. How will that be done? Through the new covenant. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. A clear reference to the new covenant. So Israel is unlike the Gentile nations. They have promises that we don't necessarily have, but we are all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I read all that in Romans 9 just to say, let's follow Paul's teaching there and not be arrogant toward the Jew. Like Moab in this text that we're reading here. Anyway, maybe that was a rabbit that I chased. I hope I caught it. 
Moab had declared then that there's nothing significant about Israel. They are like all the other nations. And, and God here pronounces judgment on Moab for their attitude in saying that there's nothing significant about them. They're going to be conquered by the people of the east, same people that the Ammonites are going to be conquered by. For what it's worth, Josephus records the exact same thing about the Moabites that he did about the Ammonites, that in the fifth year after the destruction of Jerusalem, they were brought under subjection. What's the purpose? Why is God going to destroy the Moabites? Right there. Then they will know that I am the Lord. But again, not through repentance. Not this, not this generation. They're going to know that God is the Lord through inescapable wrath. By the way, before we move on to the next group, do you think Lot ever considered the implication of taking his family down into the depraved city of Sodom? Do you think he ever considered it? That's why we're reading what we're reading here. Had he not made that decision, these first two sections aren't here. Had he not taken his family into Sodom and escaped by the skin of his teeth and hid in the cave with his daughters and had children by those two daughters, we're not reading about the Moabites and the Ammonites here. I just wonder if he, if he ever thought of the implications of how he brought them up and where he took them. Listen, parents, your decisions affect more than you. They affect your children too. Anyway, just a side note. Verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. I will make it desolate from Teman even to Dedan. They shall fall by the sword... And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord. So these three verses contain a, a prophetic condemnation or, or judgment against the country of Edom. Now, Ammon and Moab, the first two countries that we looked at, were distant kin of the Jews. Right? They were related to Israel because Lot was the nephew of Abraham. But Edom is much, much closer kin to the Jews than the Ammonites or the Moabites were because Esau, the father of the Edomites, was the brother of Jacob. And Jacob had twelve sons and those 12 sons produced for us the 12 tribes of Israel. So they are very closely related. The, the Edomites' hostility towards Israel is represented again and again and again and again in the Old Testament. It is common. And their rejoicing at the fall of Jerusalem is also mentioned in a number of prophets. You may recall we preached through the little bitty book of Obadiah, some months ago, it's just one chapter, but verses, I would tell you to turn there, but I can read these two verses for most of you and get to the index and then get to the book. But verses 10 and 11 say this about Edom. 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off its wealth and foreigners entered its gates and cast lot for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. That's what God says about Edom in Obadiah. In fact, this this phrase here, taking vengeance that we read about in Ezekiel. They, they were taking vengeance. It could literally be rendered, they were revenging with revenge. I mean, that makes it sound worse when you, when you hear the literal translation. They were revenging with revenge. In other words, they were over the top. They were excessive. It was beyond reasonable the way that they dealt with Israel. And God is pronouncing judgment on them for that. What's going to happen? Man and beast would be cut off. God says He would make it desolate. How much of it would be desolate from Teman to Dedan? Well, we're not positively sure where Teman and Dedan were located because we can't exactly find those things after all of the judgment that has come on the Edomites. But I think we can reasonably assume this was intended to represent the entire nation, much like we hear uh, from Dan to Beersheba spoken of sometimes in reference to Israel from the furthest tip north to the furthest tip south. This is total annihilation, total destruction. It is interesting that this vengeance upon Edom here in Ezekiel 25 is said to come by the hand of my people Israel. A number of prophets declare that Israel actually one day will possess Edom's land. For instance, Amos chapter 9 says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild its cities in the day of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So Amos chapter 9 says that Israel, when they are restored, will possess the remnant of Edom. Obadiah prophesied, The house of Jacob shall be like a fire, the house of Judah a flame, the house of Esau, the Edomites, stubble. And they, the Jews, shall burn them and consume them. So you see the judgment is coming through the Jews on the Edomites, according to what we read here in Ezekiel 25. And what's the reason? Same reason we've continued to read. It's worded different here, but it's the same idea. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord. Verse 14. Again, they're not going to know it in repentance. That's not the idea. They're going to know it in inescapable wrath. By the way, all three of these groups that we've looked at so far, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, have been absorbed into one group today. We call that group Arabs. And they remain indignant against God and Israel today, even at this point right now. So they have not yet learned anything. But they will. They will. All right, let's close this chapter out. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines. I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. So the last group we're going to look at this, this evening in chapter 25 is, is the Philistines. There's this prophecy of judgment against the Philistines. You, you may recall back when we went through 1 Samuel, you may remember this. If you read through your Bible on a regular basis, this also is in Joshua chapter 13. But the Philistine territory extended throughout five city-states. Like it, it was a large area and there were these five Kings, Gath, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, and Ashkelon. And these five city-states cooperated together. They formed what we might call a, a confederation. Look, throughout the entire Old Testament, no nation is more often referred to as an enemy of Israel than the Phil- Philistines. They are the most common enemy of Israel in all of the Old Testament. And it seems, at least by our text here in Ezekiel 25, that when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army attacked Judah and Jerusalem, that the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy Israel in never-ending enmity. That's what, I mean, I just read that right out of the text here. They did this all throughout the Old Testament. It's not anything anything new for them. But at this time, they did it in never-ending enmity. It it clearly seems to be worse in this particular action. Well, according to Jeremiah 47, I'm sure you all remember it, but I'll just remind you, Babylon invaded Philistia and God's judgment against them and their mistreatment, for their mistreatment for His people were carried out. So we actually see that in Jeremiah 47. Ezekiel here prophesies of that time, and he, he prophesies that God, notice what the text says, will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. I, I'm not sure it could be said any more sternly than that. Like that is strong language. But again, God's not doing anything without a cause, without a purpose, without a reason. There's a reason here. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Again, same with the others. This is not a repentant knowing of the Lord. We know these nations didn't. They're still very anti-God in that part of the world today. Even though the gospel has been taken into those areas, they've been conquered by Islam, at least in our day. But at the time that they were attacked, they didn't repent. They just knew God's inescapable wrath. Well, that's an exciting chapter, probably one that you've been looking forward to. Is there anything at all that we can learn from this chapter? Well, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for us. All Scripture is used by God to perfect us, to equip us. So I do think there are a few things that we can learn. Really quickly, we'll close it out. First, God is not just the God of Israel. It seems that way when you're reading through Ezekiel sometimes. You get the idea God's only the God of the Jews. But He is the God 
of all nations. He is the true and living God. He reigns supreme over all of the heathen gods of the peoples out here. Jehoshaphat prayed in 2 Chronicles 20, quote, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. That's what Jehoshaphat prayed. That's true. God is the, the king over all the kingdoms of the nations. David wrote in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded upon it the seas and established it upon the rivers. Listen, our God, the God of Scripture, is the true and living God. He is the God of Israel. That's clear, but He is God over this planet. He is sovereign. So the first thing we learn is God is not just the God of the Jews. He is that, but He is the God of the nations too. Second, the attitude of all nations toward God will be called into account. That's what we see here. God is not overlooking the attitude of the nations. He's, he's calling Israel and Judah into account in Ezekiel, or Judah specifically, but He's calling His own people into account. But here in these chapters, chapters 25 through 32, we see that the nations, the Gentile nations, are not excluded from judgment. God is going to call all nations into account because of their attitude toward Him. Psalm 9 says, The wicked shall return to Sheol and all nations that forget God. That's clear. That certainly includes Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia that we saw here in Ezekiel 25. As we work on through Chapter 32, we're going to see that it also affects three other nations by name, but it, it refers to all the nations of the earth. Every nation that forgets God will be called into judgment, including the United States of America. Listen, Americans, even American Christians seem to have this idea that we are somehow safe because we are a quote-unquote Christian nation, but it takes some real level of spiritual immaturity to look at our nation and believe we're a Christian nation. I don't know how people could say that, at least today. But we are going to give an account too. Like, we're not, we didn't pass all of our work, so we get to skip the final. Like, that's not how that works. You know, if you go look at Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 32, it describes a, a, a nation under God's judgment and everything about Romans 1 sounds like the United States. Yeah. Everything about it. If that passage is true, and it is, Romans 1, inspired by God, then we're not awaiting God's judgment. We are under it now. So, take precaution. Finally, first point is God is the God of all nations. Second, all nations are going to give account for the way that they have, they have uh, acknowledged or not acknowledged God. Lastly, we need to be aware that judgment is coming, even if sometimes it looks afar off. It's still coming. 
It's not only coming for nations, though. It's coming for individuals, too. But just as nations cannot escape the wrath of God, so individuals cannot escape the wrath of God on them individually. But God's wrath is either poured out on Jesus or you will pay for your own sins. That's how that works. We just studied that last week in 2 Corinthians. Lord willing, we will see more of that this coming Sunday in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And God's wrath is going to come like a torrential flood. As we read here in Ezekiel 25, God's promise of wrath, this doesn't sound like there's any way to escape it. But in the big scheme of things, there is actually a way to escape the wrath of God. He has provided a way to escape. There is one way, precisely one. There's there's Jesus. He's the true hiding place from God's wrath. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. And if you hide in Jesus by faith, by faith, by believing that He died in your place for your sins, that He rose the third day, that He's alive today, that He's soon to return for His own, that is the perfect hiding place from God's wrath. That is the only place to escape it. These nations did not believe that. And they were going to suffer the consequences. But I urge you today to flee to Christ because He is going to return. And when He does, it will be as a lion the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Stand with me, if you will. Brian, will you dismiss us, please?